Good morning. It's good to be back in church today after missing last week. Um, I'd like to invite you to stand, reach for your Bibles, and turn in it to uh, Romans chapter 8. We'll be continuing our study uh, that Pastor Bruce is leading in, leading us in called Triumphant Living. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit of life because of righteousness. For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, br brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your word, for its direction in our lives, for its guide uh, for us, uh, a guide in which we can live by, we can rest our, our lives upon, and we can uh, be fulfilled by its promises. And Father, we praise you that you are the author of this book, this wonderful guide in which we uh, live by. And we praise you that you are with us uh, when we uh, place our faith and trust in you and you uh, guide us and you uh, comfort us through times of difficulty and times of, of goodness. And we praise you and thank you for meeting with us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's what the gospel can do for you. That's what we've been learning here in our series, Triumphant Living, here in Romans chapter 8. That's what the gospel can do for you. As Paul begins this chapter in verse 1, and he declares to us kind of this essence and the summary of the gospel that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel can do for you. But as we now come and progress through these verses, and we now come to verses 12 and 13, Paul reminds us, though, even though there's no condemnation, even though we are in Christ, even though the Spirit dwells in us and sets us apart, makes us different from the rest of the world, he now reminds us here in verses 12 and 13 
that Christian life is a war. We're in a war. We're in a war against sin, and we're in a war against the flesh. Corey Byrne was showing off his pet some years ago, and draped over his neck and his shoulders was a 9-foot-long, 25-pound bow constrictor. To the horror of a watching friend, the reptile's large, lumbering coils began to tighten around its owner's neck like a noose. Slowly, the great snake squeezed Corey's life away. His air supply was cut off. His face turned red and he passed out. Unable to remove the snake by herself, Corey's girlfriend called for emergency help, but several hours later, Corey died in a local hospital. There are just some animals you cannot tame. You may call a snake your pet, you may give it a cute name, but that doesn't take the wild out of it. No matter how long you've housed it, no matter how long you've cared for it and fed a bow constrictor, it may still turn on you. After all, it is still a snake. It is much the same way with sin as we're going to look at this morning, as Paul identifies here for us. You may cuddle sin like a pet, but that doesn't take the wild out of it or make it less dangerous. Sin cannot be domesticated. Sin is poised to attack your faith at any moment. Sometimes sin, it bears its fangs and strikes in a surprise attack, and sometimes sin is cunning enough to play dead. Sometimes it's subtle enough to pose as something good. But either way, sin is wired to kill. Slowly. Cleverly. When you're not paying attention. Sin will squeeze the life right out of you. This is the nature of sin. And left unchecked, sin always destroys That's why, as a Christian, that's why as one who is now in Christ, get this, you are now licensed to kill sin. This is precisely what Paul is telling us here in these verses, 12 through 13. Look what he says again with me. Look in your notes or there in your Bibles or the pew Bibles, the black Bibles, right in in the back of the pew in front of you. Look what Paul writes again. He says, therefore, brethren, that word brethren, he's just referring to those of us who are Christ followers, those of us who are believers, Christians. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the reality is, we still struggle with sin. Because sin still lives within us. We saw this in the very first message of the series. Paul testifies of this very fact in the previous chapter, Romans chapter 7. That's what the whole chapter talks about. Paul's talking about his own personal struggle with sin. But now, now the Holy Spirit also dwells within us. This is what we we learned just a few weeks ago in chapter 8 now, in verse 9, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because now, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling with us, now we have the power to kill sin. In other words, now as Christ followers, now as those of us who are in Christ, and Christ is in us, we are licensed to kill. We're licensed to kill sin. Yet most Christians, if we're honest, 
myself included, we have to somewhat admit to failure when it comes to dealing with personal besetting sins. How is it with you? Do you tolerate them while inwardly kind of wishing that they would leave? Do you, do you secretly pamper and feed your sins? Or do you feel that, man, I'm just inadequate to even deal with them, to deal with a particular sin? Consider these words by John Owen. And I quote, he says, The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Now, perhaps you've never heard of the name John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan pastor who wrote a little booklet called The Mortification of Sin and Believers way back in the 17th century based on this very verse here that we're looking at this morning. Mortification. That's a word we use every day in our language, isn't it? Not. We don't use that word too often. It's not a word we use often today, although we're, we're familiar with words that are related to mortification. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the word mortuary, mortician, and immediately our minds associate those two words with death. Although when we use the word mortify today, we usually mean to embarrass someone or to humiliate them. Oh, I was mortified that you said that. You get the idea. But Paul isn't talking about being embarrassed here. When Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body, he has one thing in mind and one thing only. That is kill sin. Or in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So what are we to do then with sin that kind of remains in us, that we struggle with at times? And the answer is very simple. Kill it. However, killing sin isn't ever that simple, is it? And for this reason, we need to, number one, if you want to follow along in your notes there, we need to understand the mindset of mortifying sin or the mindset of killing sin. And this mindset begins in verse 12 where Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, it's as if Paul kind of breaks off in mid-sentence, leaving us to supply the implied second half of what he's saying here, that we are debtors to the Lord to live according to the Spirit. After all, Christ bought us with his blood. So now we belong to him, and his Spirit now dwells in us. So the mindset of mortifying sin begins with remembering our obligation as Christians, notice it on the screen coming up. And our obligation is this. You owe nothing to the flesh. Listen, we owe nothing to the flesh but everything to the Lord. You say, well, well what's the flesh? We've talked about this already. Paul, man, he's used this word several times already throughout Romans 8. But just a quick review. The flesh is that old, rebellious, sinful nature that we're all born with. So Paul's not talking about our physical bodies when he refers to the flesh here, but rather our fallen sinful dispositions towards sin. And according to Galatians 5.17, our flesh has passions that war against the desires of the Spirit now dwelling within us. 
And the fact that Paul addresses this obligation to believers when he uses the word brethren here means that we still have the flesh dwelling within us that's trying to dominate and destroy our lives. But Paul comes to us and he reminds us now that we owe nothing to that flesh, but everything to the Lord. Remember, after all, God loved us while we were yet sinners. In fact, he loved us so much, what did he do for us? He sent his son, his own son, to bear the awful penalty for our sins. In other words, God, because of what he did in Christ, his son, God has removed the condemnation that we deserve. And he has now set us free from the law of sin and death. Christ himself now has come to live within us by his spirit, bringing us new life in him. And he promises to raise up our mortal bodies when he returns. And we owe it all to God's grace, not to anything that we have done. So remember, Paul says, the mindset for fighting sin, the mindset for killing sin begins right here. That you owe nothing to the flesh, but everything to the Lord. We're not debtors to the flesh. We owe the Lord everything good in our lives, and we owe the flesh nothing. This is the mindset we must have when it comes to killing sin. And you go, well, well, why is that? And the reason is because of what Paul writes in the very next verse here in verse 13. Look what he says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will... Thank you. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, what Paul wants us to understand here is that this is a matter of life and death. Notice this on your, in your notes coming off the screen. It's kill your sin or it will kill you. That's the mindset here. We're in the midst of a war in which the enemy is sin. It's kill or be killed. Or as John Owens wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Back in 1993, Donald Wyman was clearing timber in a remote Pennsylvania forest. And tragically, a tree fell on him, pinning his left leg. For an hour, he screamed for help, but there was no one to come and rescue him. Realizing that he would die there if he didn't take bold and decisive action, Mr. Wyman tied off his leg with a tourniquet from his leather boot lace, took out his pocket knife, and cut off his leg about six inches below his knee. He then crawled back to his truck, drove to get help, and lived to tell about it. Now, Mr. Wyman's decision to amputate his own leg was gruesome. It was awful. It was excruciating. But it was the right decision. In fact, it was the only rational choice under the circumstances. It was either his leg or his life. And one reason why we are so often too soft in our own sins is because we think Oh, I have a choice in this matter. We think we can coddle our sins rather than cut them away, and it will not make that much difference. But Jesus taught otherwise. All you have to do is go to the Sermon on the Mount, 
most of us have heard about that. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Listen to what Jesus writes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Tear it out. Cut it off. It's pretty radical. I mean, what's going on here? What is Jesus saying with these words? Well, Jesus isn't promoting mutilation of our bodies. He isn't promoting self-mutilation. Rather, Jesus is emphasizing the ruthless nature of mortification. Why? Because left unchecked, sin always leads to death. So Jesus, is now, Jesus now is exhorting us to embrace the most costly sacrifices, the most radical refusals, and the most drastic measures in the fight against sin. In other words, Jesus is calling us to a life, if I can use this word, to a life of holy violence against sin. And it begins with a wartime mentality, a Donald Wyman kind of ruthlessness toward evil, a mindset that takes God's warnings here seriously. Now, perhaps this raises a few questions in your minds. Perhaps this even puts some tension in your heart. I mean, does the threat of death imply that we can lose our salvation? I mean, if we're saved by grace and not by works, how can Jesus and Paul both say that if we don't kill, our sin will die? Well, first of all, Jesus is not teaching that we are saved by works in this passage, which means someone who is justified by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works, cannot die in the sense of eternal death. Eternal death being separation from God in a literal place that the Bible refers to as hell. Rather, Jesus, he's speaking to us here in our human fallen condition who live outside the reign of God's grace, and he's showing us how sin works and where it will inevitably lead for all those who refuse to trust him for their eternal salvation. Brian Hedges puts it like this, Genuine faith in Christ's saving work always sets our feet on the narrow path of holiness. And one of the means Jesus uses to help us on this path are vivid warning signs that show us where sin leads for those who don't stay on the path. Second, here in the context of Romans chapter 8, Paul is telling us that the practice of killing sin is the result, in fact, it's not only the result, but it's the evidence of that you are actually justified by faith alone in Christ alone. In other words, if you are killing sin in your life, then you know you are in Christ. On the other hand, if you are living according to the flesh and not killing sin, then there's no compelling reason for thinking that you are in Christ and therefore justified. 
One author explains it this way. The faith that makes peace with God makes war on our sin. If you are not at odds with sin, you are not at home with Jesus. Not because being at odds with sin makes you at home with Jesus, but because being at home with Jesus makes you at odds with sin. So, get this, listen to me carefully. While sin cannot drag a true believer to eternal death, Jesus' words here, and Paul's words still hold true. And that is sin always destroys. Sin is out to ruin you as badly as it can, dragging you as far away from God as it can in any way that it can. Just as Donald Wyman didn't decide to sever his own leg until it was clear there was no other alternative, so we will not exert holy violence against our sins until we're convinced that they really are dangerous to our lives. But everything in our hearts, let's admit it, everything in our hearts, and certainly everything in our culture tells us just the opposite, does it not? Our hearts and our culture tells us, hey, sin is no big deal. The tiger ate her hand. And then it slowly proceeded to eat the rest of her arm. That's how Vikram Chari described the horrifying spectacle that he and his six-year-old son witnessed at the San Francisco Zoo on December 22, 2006, when a Siberian tiger attacked her keeper. Now, that bloody assault, you may remember that story in the news, is a vivid reminder of what we already know in our minds, but what we often forget and don't always remember, and that is sin is like that lion. It may appear harmless, but it will turn on you at any moment, and the result is never pretty. This is why the Bible insists that salvation involves not only the forgiveness of our sin, but also the freedom from sin. We are called to resist sin. We're called to renounce it, because the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus and Paul tell us to mortify sin, to kill it, to cut it off, to put it to death, and you will live. So burn these words into your brains. Kill your sin, or it will kill you. Now the logical question is, how? How do we do this? How is this done? Well, that brings us to our second point here. Utilize the means of mortifying sin. Now, look once more to what Paul writes in verse 13. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is the means of killing sin? Well, to kill sin, put it to death by the Spirit. That's what Paul's telling us here. Put it to death by the Spirit, and you will live. Paul has just told us in verse 9 of the very same chapter here in Romans 8, that the Spirit dwells in us. And that's what makes us different. That's what sets us apart. And now he's telling us in verse 13 that we kill sin by the very same Spirit that's now dwelling within us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who transforms sin-tolerating people into sin-killing people. Yes, 
Don't miss this. We, we are responsible for killing sin. We are accountable for killing sin. We're the subject of the verb here when Paul writes, put to death. We're the subject of that verb. This is our responsibility. This is our accountability. But we can only accomplish killing sin, get this, through the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. In other words, this means we can't kill sin on our own apart from the Spirit. Or as one Bible scholar put it, without the Spirit we cannot, without us the Spirit will not. So what is this putting to death, as Paul calls it? Well, by put to death, Paul means to cut off sin before it goes anywhere. Cut off the lifeline. Cut off the flow of blood and suffocate it. In other words, you don't coddle it, you don't feed it, you don't treat it like a pet. Instead, you put your hands around its neck and you don't let go until it has stopped breathing. You strangle sin. And you strangle it at its source while it's still just a thought, when it's still just a temptation. Now, perhaps some of you are here, you're thinking to yourself, because I thought this question, can sins really be killed, though? I mean, is this really a possibility? Can sins really be killed? I mean, is, is Paul, does, is he living in a fantasy world, or does he live in the same world I live in? Is this realistic? Is it realistic to talk this way about killing all sins? Or are there some sins that we just kind of need to learn to live with, hopefully tame a little, but not hope to conquer and destroy? Well, I think past failure in dealing with ongoing sins in our lives has rendered some of us skeptical of making any real progress, the kind of progress Paul's talking about in these verses. It's not that we lack a desire to kill sin, but that we lack confidence that there will be any success in killing sin in our lives. After all, perhaps you've tried to kill this sin or kill that sin, but the success was just so short-lived. And so now, now after, after a week or a day or a month or a year of trying to kill that sin with hardly any success, now we kind of just resigned ourselves. Well, it's not possible. And so we kind of have this defeatist outlook that cripples any hope of progress in the Christian life, any hope of progress of living in holiness that God calls us to. So let me ask, has pessimism, has cynicism rendered you content with kind of just a certain level of holiness? That one that lives at peace with occasional bouts of sin, knowing, oh, there's forgiveness in the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, I have two responses to that. First, let me just say this, there is indeed forgiveness for every sin by confession and repentance of that sin. Are we not thankful for that? After all, is 1 John 1, 9 still not true for all sins, every sin? When he writes, if we confess our sins, 
He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is still true regardless. Second, though, I would say this. Assurance of forgiveness for sin, though, should never make us complacent and indifferent about sin. This complacency is what Paul anticipates way back in Romans chapter 6 in the very first verse when he asks, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, his answer in verse 2 is decisive. Well, he says, certainly not. And then he tells us why. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Again, killing sin is no easy task. And yet, killing sin is what we are called to do. So how do we go about doing this? What does killing sin look like on a, on a weekly basis where we live, where we go to school, where we work? On a daily basis, in our marriages, with our kids? What's this look like? What's this mean on a practical level? Well, let me give you seven ways to kill sin. And this is adapted from a book that I've been reading called uh, Christ Formed in You by the author of Brian Hedges. If you want to pick it up and check it out, I encourage you to. It's a great book. And I've taken his chapter, chapter 7 on this, and kind of adapted this from that. Number one is to yield yourself to God. Yield yourself to God. One of the first steps in fighting against sin is surrendering yourself to God. Now, why do I say that? Well, you go back to Romans chapter 6. Verses 12 and 13, and Paul says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather, listen to him, he says, Present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life, or brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul says we are to hand over to God, both ourselves, all of us, as well as our bodies to God as instruments for his righteousness. This is particularly challenging in our self-centered culture, though, is it not? And yet, we will never make much progress in the war against sin until we have first dethroned self. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, 38, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So killing sin starts right here. Yield yourself to God. And by the way, this isn't a one-time act. I would throw out to you that this is a daily thing we do. Every morning you wake up and get out of bed. Man, we present ourselves, our bodies, our members as his instruments for his service of righteousness. And we ask the Spirit to help us in that regard as we go about living our day. So this is something we do each and every day. Number two, accept that the battle never ends. Listen, killing sin is a constant duty that will require lifelong battle. The present tense, it's interesting here, of the verb translated put to death implies an ongoing action. In other words, we must never let up the fight because sin is always pounding away at us. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This means life on earth is marked by constant warfare. We are never off duty when it comes to killing sin. There is no ceasefire in this war. Number three, make no provision for the flesh. Now let me ask you a question. Which, which flame is harder to extinguish? The flicker of a match or the blaze of a forest fire? Well, the answer is rather obvious. Listen, fires start small and then get bigger. And Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This verse is about lighting fewer matches and being careful to snuff out the lit ones before the flames increase. In practice, listen, here's what this is. Here's the idea behind this. It means not exposing yourself to the things that are likely to bring into your life strong temptation to sin. This means there are some things we just have to say no to. There are some things we must not do. There are some places we must not go. And there are some things we must not see if we are to guard ourselves against sin. Make no provision for it. Number four, use your spiritual sword. Use your spiritual sword. Romans 8.13 says we must put to sin death by the Spirit. But how? How does the Spirit help us to put sin to death? Well, consider what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 17, where it says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, link these two verses together. Link what Paul writes here in Romans 8, verse 13, and link together what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 17. He's talking about the Spirit in both verses. And you link them together, and we see that the one way the Spirit helps us to kill sin is with His sword. And what is His sword? It's the very Word of God, which we have accessible to us today in a gazillion versions. We're without excuse on this one. As my mother used to always tell us three boys, in reference to the Word of God, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. The psalmist agreed when he wrote in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, Lord. So use your spiritual sword, the Word of God. Number five, aim at the heart. Aim at the heart. If we want to kill sin, we must aim at the right target. That target, folks, listen to me carefully on this one. The target of killing sin is not merely just external bad behavior. But rather, it's the sinful desires of the heart that produce the behavior. You can knock the fruit off the tree all you want. You can spend days 
and years knocking the fruit off the tree. But if you don't want it to grow, you've got to cut the tree down at its roots. In other words, you kill the bad fruit by severing the bad root. Jesus had something to say about this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of, his, of the heart, his mouth speaks. So killing sin is not just about changing behavior, but rather it's about addressing the sinful desires in the heart. But how? How are sinful desires weakened? Well, let's consider snakes again. I know some of you are snake fans, so let's consider them again. There are lots of ways to kill a snake, right? can run over it with a lawnmower. How many have done that before, a gardener snake? Yeah, all right. You can crush it with a rock. You can starve it. You can burn it. You can drown it. You can even chop off its head. Listen, choose your favorite method of killing a snake. But what you are essentially doing in each is depriving the snake of something it needs to live. Be it its brains, food, air, or hospitable environment. The idea, that's what we have to do with sins in the heart. We have to weaken sin by taking away the things that give it strength, by depriving it of food and air, as it were. This means one of the most practical ways to kill sin is to quit giving it opportunities to thrive. Like Paul said, make no provision for the flesh. Number six. Number six, six ways to stay. Uh, to kill sin is to stay in community. Stay in community. I find it interesting that the verb put to death, you may have noticed this, is actually in the plural. It's not in the singular. I don't think that's by accident. I think Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did that on purpose. You say, what's the implications? What's that mean? Why? Well, the battles, get this, the battles are best fought by armies not by individuals, which means, listen, a key strategy in killing sin is to stay in community with other believers in Jesus Christ, such as what we have here in our church, the opportunity to stay in community through our grow groups, which is why we promote that so much and advocate it so much. we got to stay in community with one another. We're reminded of this truth in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, 10, where it says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And then you go over to the New Testament passage of Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 13, and it gives us, and it's a warning to us, by the way, Look, listen to what he says. The writer here says, take care, brothers. Referring to believers again. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The implications of this are staggering. Because what this means is that one of the means that God uses to keep people, to keep us here, from falling away from Him is mutual daily exhortation which means perseverance in the faith is a community project. 
The reality is we need one another to kill sin and to grow in holiness. We can't do this alone. I love what Joshua Harris writes. He made this comment. He said, lone rangers are dead rangers. And in Christianity, in the Christian life, that is so true. So stay in community and let your brothers and sisters in Christ help you to kill your sin. And then the last one, number seven, depend on the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So while our constant effort is necessary, it's required, we clearly cannot defeat sin on our own strength. We must depend on the power of the Spirit who dwells in us. Now, let's stop here for a moment. As we kind of wrap this up, let me just say this. All of these strategies that we looked at, all seven of them, all of these are only possible through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Over and over again, when the Bible commands us to put sin to death, get this, it does so in the context of Christ's victory over the very sins we battle. Now, if you don't know it, that's amen, quadruple. That's, wow! That's, that's cool. That is so awesome. Because that means, get this, that means we fight from a position of victory, not a position of defeat. And that makes all the difference in the world. As most of you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. Sorry, women's basketball team. I'm a KU fan. And I tell you what, there are times, my, my favorite thing to do is I like to DVR. DVR, by the way, is the greatest thing since sliced bread. DVR the basketball games. And then I will watch them after the game is done, and I will watch them knowing the score. It's a beautiful thing. To know that KU already won the game, and then watch it from start to finish, because I just watch it in my comfy chair in my living room on my big screen TV, and I watch it with just, ah. And so when they make these dumb-headed, foolish mistakes that Nadir Tharp, because he can't take care of the ball, and they have a turnover. I'm like, no big deal. I know they won. They won. Wiggins is going to bail them out. I know, because I already know. They're going to win. And I watch that from a position of victory, not a position of defeat. Now, obviously, don't ask me if I watched the game yesterday. <laughs> I DVR'd it. But I never did watch it. <laughs> Listen, it's the same idea. Man, we are fighting and we are living this life from a position of victory already. We know the outcome for our lives. So if we hope to kill sin, look at this, we must look to the cross of Jesus Christ. You say, why? Well, notice this on the screen in your notes. Because the only sins we can kill are the sins that have been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus. In the words of John Owen, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. 
So the very first priority in killing sin is to look to Jesus Christ as your crucified Savior and Lord. That is to put your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. As Owen reminds us, set your faith upon Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Do you get what this means? Man, this means you cannot fight sin unless you have first found rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ dying in your place. This also means you cannot mortify your sin unless that sin has already been nailed to the cross of Christ through your faith in what Christ has done on the cross for you. For there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Let's pray. As we bow our heads and as that, as that comes and leads us in our response time, let me ask you just a couple of questions as you sit there in your pew and as you ponder God's word through the Apostle Paul here. What is God saying to you at this point in your life as a Christ follower? What have you tolerated in your life that you must today get rid of? Where have you left your flank unguarded and exposed to temptation? And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christ follower. You have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the first step, the first priority for you is to look to Jesus Christ as your crucified Savior and Lord. To put your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and for the gift of eternal life. And so I would encourage you to respond and cry out to Jesus Christ to save you and forgive you. Zach's going to sing just a chorus here. And right where you're seated, I want to encourage you to respond as the Spirit leads you. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would help us to see the gravity of our sin and the necessity to kill it before it kills us. We thank you for Christ's victory over sin on the cross. And we give thanks for your Spirit that dwells within us and enables us to deal with the enemy that lies within. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.